Hello and welcome to Hey All You Zombies. My name is Chris Abel and looking at us through the magic looking glass over there is Richard Krauss, the film critic. Hello everyone. <laughs> I love the new theme song. Thank you, yes. I can say um, that I'm a fan of the theme song. <laughs> That's awesome. It's got kind of a, a nice snappy tune. Yeah, I have been searching for the last three months to try to find some zombie music for Hey All You Zombies. Right. It's a very difficult task because, of course, YouTube, as you mentioned in our last episode, has software bots that are constantly scanning transmissions. If they find anything that's copyright infringement, you get shut down. So that's trying to right. find... <laughs> trying to find something that that I mean, and I'm not talking about trying to you know find a song that we can kind of illegally or illegitimately play. No, something that's just not going to set off the software bots because they even shut down legitimate broadcasts of music. Well, so I, I think I, well, what we were talking about last week, which I just thought was so kind of funny yeah. and ironic, is that NASA released footage of the landing on Mars, which then was snapped up by the TV networks who incorporated it into promos and all that stuff, which of course they copyright, the the, uh, the networks copyright that stuff. So then NASA, who through the goodness of their hearts, put all, all this great HD footage on YouTube, only to see it get taken down by the robots who are looking for copyright infringements because second party people had uh, uh, copyrighted it. It's crazy. Oh, it, it's nuts. And you find that uh, everybody who's using the platform we're using, which is Google Plus Hangouts on Air, is really nervous about it. You can't have anything going off in the background. Even your cell phone might go off, the ringtone, right. and you know, end everything. So I've been hunting and hunting and hunting and hunting, and I'm very, very happy to say that I found this band, Johnny O and the Jerks. Uh, the, name of, <laughs> the name of the song is Zombie Love Affair. Yes. We are going to post a, a complete link to it on our website. You can actually buy it through iTunes. I love the whole song. We'll, we'll play it at the end of the episode of this episode as well, so you can hear the whole thing. I'll even put up the lyrics because they're fantastic. Um, but we have that uh, courtesy of an organization known as Music Alley, formerly mm -hmm. known as the Podsafe Network. And what they do is they allow independent small bands to be able to license their music for free to broadcasts like this so that they can increase their awareness. And for that, we're, we're very happy with them. Well, that is a rocket theme song. I'm proud and pleased to have that on our podcast. <laughs> uh, oh, and uh, let's see, if I remember correctly, it seems like it's been a while, but uh, we did have a movie pistols dot movie pistols at dawn oh, we did. last time. Yeah, we did. We... And it was all about time machines. And I chose the DeLorean from Back yeah. to the Future. I'm pulling this up right now. Uh, you chose uh, the Time Bandits map. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I have a feeling I know which way this one is going to go. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I, uh, I beat you by a third of the votes. Uh, pardon me. To uh, Let me have a look here. Yep. Yep. The Time Bandit uh, was a no-go this, this week. I'm sorry. Once again, I had a couple of down weeks there. I was losing constantly, and yeah. uh, things have changed. You're back. I feel, I feel like I'm back. I'm going to go to the track right after we're done. I'm going to buy lottery tickets, and I'm going to go to the track because I am back. I'm back, people. Well, you know, it was a very popular topic. We had a lot of people writing in on Twitter yes. and on Facebook saying, hey, you forgot about this, you forgot about that. You know, obviously, the phone booth from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Right. Uh, fantastic example. Uh, lots of people praising the DeLorean as being a, a top uh, machine. Right. Uh, the Klingon Bird of Prey from Star Trek IV. 
all the that's know, very cool yeah <laughs> which is like you know an infamous you know example of time travel going back getting the whales fantastic and then um uh, a friend of mine on facebook her husband made sure to, that we have to have to send a call out to the hot tub time machine well, you know what? I came very close to choosing the hot tub time machine, uh, but because it only went back to the 1980s uh, in the movie, it's not. Uh, I didn't. I didn't really. Uh, I didn't think it was uh, varied enough. Right. I wanted, you know, like most time machines, you can go back to pretty much wherever you want. The time machine takes you. The hot tub time machine only takes you back to like when Michael Jackson was ruling the charts with Thriller, and that didn't <laughs> seem uh, like enough to me. No, I, I think well, it's probably the funniest time travel movie. That and the Bill and Ted movies, probably the funniest time travel movies. Yeah. Well, I like the form factor. I, I think that it might be fun to kind of travel through time in a hot tub. Uh, it would certainly be very easy to get other people to come in and sort of join you. Usually the problem on Doctor Who is that people sort of stop and back off and go, you want me to go right. inside that little tiny box? Are you kidding? But if it was a hot tub, then Doctor Who would have far more companions, I think. Well, you know what? I think he's had enough. I think he has enough companions in a general way. <laughs> uh, so uh, this week, we've decided to devote the entire episode to the Toronto International Film Festival, uh, mainly because Mr. Krauss there uh, has been living and breathing every second there for more than a week. Because although the festival just started last Thursday in Toronto, you have actually been started on it like a week beforehand. You get to see the movies in advance of everybody. Oh, right? more than that. I mean, I, I've been watching movies now. I mean, we're, we're a week into the festival, and I've been watching movies for four weeks. So, you know, the thing about the festival, everyone's like, it's the craziest 10 days of the year for, you know, for film nerds like myself. Well, it's actually like the busiest four or five weeks of the year. Uh, because in order to do uh, the kind of schedule that I have to keep where I'm doing interviews with people and, and you know, uh, doing reviews for the various, you know, radio and television and print outlets that I cover for, um, I have to see everything in advance because, ironically, when the film festival's on, I don't really have that much time to see movies. So I actually uh, start to watch stuff, um, you know, weeks in advance at the rate of, like, three or four a day. And you're not so. just pumping out reviews, but you're also doing interviews, uh, you're there for Q&As, all sorts of things that are happening. Yeah, well, I did uh, I did the press conferences, I hosted the press conferences this year uh, for the, the official ones for TIFF, uh, for Argo with Ben Affleck and John Goodman and, you know, the entire cast. And then I hosted the press conference for Cloud Atlas with the Wachowski siblings, uh, Tom Tickfer, uh, Tom Hanks, Halle Berry, Hugo Weaving, I mean, it goes on. Everyone, uh, literally, everyone and their mother was there. Uh, there were 14 people on stage that I was meant to uh, speak to and, and uh, make sure that everyone got a chance to, uh, to uh, say something. And so it was, uh, you know, I mean, it was fun, those things. And I, I listen, I, I thoroughly enjoyed doing them. But uh, uh, sometimes, uh, like the, uh, uh, the, the the just the timing of them, and I'm sending myself pictures. I'm about to show you some photos here. Mm -hmm. um, the um, sometimes it's just all about timing because what happens at the film festival these days is that everything really happens on that first weekend. So the festival starts on Thursday, and you you this happens every year. You go 
at the end of the day, you go, wow, that wasn't so bad. The film festival started. I mean, I saw a couple of movies and I did some interviews. That wasn't, and then Friday hits and it just feels like you're being beaten up and kicked around from Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and into Monday. And, uh, and it, of course, my press conference schedule fell right in the middle of all that. So Cloud Atlas, which I was thrilled to be a part of and thrilled to, uh, um, you know, moderate and have all that talent in front of me and able to ask questions and have access to, thrilled to do it. But it was, I think, on Sunday afternoon. And when I had 25 interviews to do before I got there and 25 more to do and a movie to see that day. So it was, it was uh, a hectic day. It was a hectic day, but a good day. I mean, listen, you know, uh, you're never going to find me complaining about having to go see movies or uh, uh, getting a chance to, uh, you know, spend some time out in the world talking to filmmakers. Right. And it seems like this year is a really good year. I'm I'm sad and kind of angry because I've missed out this year. I've had other projects that I'm, I've been working on. Right. We just launched my new talking blog, Planet of the Apps, over at News Talk 1010, oh, cool. which has been a lot cool. of fun. Um, but I've been a long time... Uh, attendee to right. the Toronto International Film Festival going back to the very early 1990s. So I've got about right. 10 years logged and it's just been an incredible experience. So um, in, in terms of sort of explaining to people what the Toronto International Film Festival is, we're on YouTube so this can be viewed anywhere in the world. Uh, maybe you could explain why it's such a big deal or has become a big deal because it wasn't necessarily when it first started. Well, when it first started, I mean, they had trouble uh, getting people to go uh, initially. And then, you know, uh, over the years, they started to build a reputation as a great launching pad for films to launch into Oscar season. So I think when that really happened uh, was with American Beauty, when it, it premiered here. And I remember this was about 10 years ago, and it was... Uh, at the point in the festival's history where the parties didn't really even have VIP rooms yet. I remember going to the American Beauty party. We see the screening and everyone's like, wow, that was amazing. And then we go to this party and it was in the entertainment district here in Toronto somewhere. I can't remember where exactly. But, you know, Kevin Spacey and all the stars of the film were just sort of at a table in and around where everybody else was. And today, that would just simply never happen. I mean, it's just, it, it's changed a lot in that way. Um, so it, it, it changed from being that sort of friendly kind of festival to being something that's just a little different now. And the way that it's different is that it is, uh, it's bigger. Uh, you know, you look at movies like Slumdog Millionaire, which was going to be directed, uh, released directly to DVD uh, until it played at TIFF, won the People's Choice Awards, and it went on to win a bunch of Academy Awards. The King's Speech was another movie. Capote, Ray, I mean, it goes on and on and on. Any movie that you can think of uh, from the last number of years that have won you know, Academy Awards or, or Golden Globes probably uh, got it started TIFF. And so it has become a big deal. Uh, distributors take this uh, festival very seriously now. Um, for me, it, it is uh, a different kind of thing. I mean, I, I love, I mean, it's all about the movies for me. I'm going to see uh, amazing films that I might not get a chance to see uh, elsewhere. But it's also, and I'm about to blow your mind and show you a cool picture here. Um, it's also about getting to meet people. And this uh, this is uh, me. I'm holding a little uh, uh, representation, a little doll of Sigmund Freud. And that's Terry Jones next to me from Monty Python. And, <laughs> the human you know, parrot. If, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, if you had told me that I would uh, at one time in my life ever uh, meet anyone from Monty Python, uh, you would have blown my, my mind. 
Um, now, uh, the way it stands now for me is that I've met a few of them, and what I'm beginning to uh, understand is sort of how nice, oh, that's me with iced tea, by the way. I'll tell you a funny iced tea story in a, in a second. But uh, Terry Jones, uh, I interviewed him for this movie called The Liar's Autobiography, and uh, we had a lovely chat, and uh, I mentioned a couple of things, and then later on I saw him. And he came up to me and said, you know, you were one of the first interviews I did, and I ended up using some of your lines in my other interviews because you seem to understand the movie so well. And I was like, yay! And then he said, give me your email address. And then he gave me one, which I'm just going to – he gave me his, which I'm just going to show you very quickly. And uh, and we've been in touch. He's a lovely guy. And so, uh, um, as, a, as I say, the 14-year-old in me, uh, my head exploded a little bit that someone from Monty Python was that friendly to me. Uh, Ice-T, the photograph that I just had up on screen here. Let me see if I can pull it up again. Um, he was an interesting guy. I mean, he was the producer of a movie called uh, Iceberg Slim, Portrait of a Pimp, that's playing here. So we brought him in to do the interview. Mm -hmm. And it was a little early in the morning, and he had been out. You see he's wearing sunglasses here in the picture. And... Uh, um, he said, you know, I'm not taking these sunglasses off. I was out a bit too late last night. I gotta, I'm doing the rock star thing. It's cool. He's a very, very charming, friendly guy. And so uh, I said to him, what do I call you? What should I call you? And he said, uh, you can call me Ice. My friends call me Ice. And he said, and at this hour of the morning, you better be my friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> that is awesome. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, as well, as seeing, you know, all these kind of great movies and and being, uh, you know, able to do all the, the kind of interesting things that I that I do in a run of a week, you get to meet uh, some very cool people. Yeah, it's it's always been a wonderful experience. Well, more so many years ago than today, in terms of having access to the actual stars and the directors. Uh, yeah. If you're an attendee, it's become less and less the case. I've noticed where a lot of the stars that come in because they have to promote these films. What ends up happening is you go to the movie and then you have somebody like one of the directors, Noel Cowan, step up on stage and say, I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Drew Barrymore, couldn't make it to the screening, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And then you're looking in the news and everywhere there's all these columns and articles about how Drew Barrymore had this party up until 3 a.m. and popped open champagne. Right. Very annoying because it was something that was always very special with the festival that you got to see the movie and then you had a very intimate session with the actors or the directors. Yeah. Not so I, much anymore, you know. Well, well, it, it, it does still happen, though. I mean, there there, mm. there happen. There are Q and As after the things. You know what? The, the program that is particularly good for the Q and As and meeting the the filmmakers is Midnight Madness, and it's the program of films that play at midnight. Uh, it's not just a snappy little name for <laughs> for a, <laughs> a, a, a grouping of, of uh, films. It's actually they start at midnight, and their genre pictures are horror films and offbeat comedy films and things. And uh, you know, by the time you're doing the Q and A at two o'clock in the morning or two thirty in the morning, uh, you've got punchy filmmakers. They've been up all day, but it's a party kind of atmosphere. And the midnight madness screenings are a lot of fun, like a big lot of fun. Oh, completely. I mean, those are the kind of movies that you need to see with an audience when you have over the top kung fu action heads yeah. flying that kind of sort of thing and it's great because you're right in that the filmmakers often they're so nervous they're so terrified about whether this this, right. this potentially controversial movie that hasn't been picked up is going to play well that when they have an audience that just screams and hollers and yells at the screen that yeah you have a fantastic experience afterwards and i find that that tends to be the place where you get these incredible movies 
that haven't been seen anywhere before. The programmers are fantastic in terms of picking out the gems from all the piles. But there are always, you know, great mementos. And I wanted to share this one. This is the um, barf bag that was handed out for Ishii the Killer by Takashi Miike. And it's a fully... awesome. Yeah, I, I... held on to it. It's a fully functional bar bag. It has the, actually the instructions in the back as to how to open right. it up. And there's a little sticker there to fold it over and tape it up just in case you start to uh, feel a little too queasy from the movie. And it has a cool. reputation. Cool. You know what? You, you keep talking. I'm going to go get something. I, I didn't know you were going to whip out a barf prop uh the barf yeah. bag prop. you keep talking i'm going to come back i've got something to show you uh, <laughs> keep all talking. right keep it I going talk about keep it the people entertained you know all right so what i'll show you here is some of the original program books this is from back in the day when toronto international film festival was known as the festival of festivals and people could go and get little tiny tickets and just go to the theater and cash them in now yeah. it's this huge lottery this is uh, a framed the piece from the house of kraus uh and this is um <laughs> this is <laughs> The vomit bag and the price of the one admission will enable you to see Mark of the Devil, positively the most horrifying film ever made. Uh, and yeah, this is in my living room. This is a framed piece hanging in my living room, and it's a barf bag from the 1960s from a movie <laughs> called Mark of the Devil. And uh, it was a housewarming gift. And uh, I don't know, you know, the, the, the tagline to the movie, the advertising tagline, is guaranteed to upset your stomach. And uh, it's the first film rated V for violence, apparently. And oh, really? I, you know, someone gave us this, a friend of mine gave me this uh, as a housewarming gift. And I thought, how many people can you give a barf bag to as a housewarming gift? Here it is. I'm proud to have it. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, not a TIFF film. Not a Toronto International Film Festival film, no. All right. So I've got um, a story here. And uh, it, I've always wanted to tell this to some people that you know. Maybe one day I'll get that chance. Okay. Anyway, the uh, Toronto International Film Festival for me, uh, very early on in my life, was the entry point to go and see movies that I would not ever be able to get to see because right. the internet wasn't there yet. You couldn't download stuff. Uh, if you went to video stores at that time, it was all mainstream stuff. It wasn't right. until Miramax started. Miramax was sort of the first distributor to come in and actually have auctions for stuff like The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover and really bring that whole independent scene. So for me, that's where I I was always spending my time every year, and I would see like 30 movies within a week. Wow. This involves a lot of standing in line, and because it takes place in September, it involves a lot of standing in line in the rain. Mm-hmm. And I went to see one movie. I was standing there. It was just raining and raining and raining. And I noticed that everybody in line suddenly went, opened up umbrellas. But me. I was stuck there, pouring rain on top of me. And I looked over, and there were two very attractive young women who had right. left the line and ducked into a doorway. And I decided to uh, do something that's not typically in my nature, but I right. thought I would be aloof and cool mm-hmm. and act like, you know, Hey, man, I don't care about the rain. (laughs) And much to my surprise, those girls actually took an interest and they called me over. And so I kind of screwed over and got to to hang out with them. And the three of us got to see the movie uh, together. I can't tell you what the movie is, but I had a really great time with those two women uh, to the point where, you know, we traded phone numbers and uh, later on said, well, we should connect up. And the next time that we're in Toronto, kind of, you know, go and hang out. Uh, And they were, you know... 
kind of impressed the fact that I knew a lot about films. I was so passionate about it and all these kinds of things. And we we're hanging out. And uh, the one woman, she tells me, well, actually, she's going to school to study engineering, hmm. which is kind of cool because, you know, I'm the son of an engineer. So I'm really excited. Right. But now she's working on films. And oh. said, you know, would you like to come back to my place and take a look at some drawings that I'm doing? And I said, yeah, <laughs> I would love to do that. Now, that's the problem, because I don't think I picked up on that, because I actually wanted to see the drawings. You want to see the drawings. You want to see the I pictures. Want... Well, I, I went back, and she unveiled uh, this, this you know, set of drafting, uh, this engineering uh, piece that she had been working on. She said that this was for a set, for a movie that was right. being made in Toronto. You know, it was some people that she knew from school. Everybody's trying to make their own little film movie project, that kind right. of thing. She wasn't even getting paid for it. She was just doing it as a, as a you know, favor and asked, would right. I want to take a look at the drawings? I'm like, are you kidding? I'm a technical guy. I would love to, you know, right. and, and, and you're marrying technology and movies. You have my interest. Yeah, yeah. You know, yes, shut up and show me your drawings. And so she brought me over to her table and opened up the drawings. And I already had in my head what I thought it was going to look at. What I looked at did not look like a movie set at all. Mm. It was highly technical, very right. complex. So I thought this is like going to be somebody's, you know, compound or military yeah, yeah. or something like this. It was insane because it wasn't even a proper set. It was more of a box. That's what I was looking at. And it had different components that would move in under the walls and out of the ceilings. And, and I'm just hypnotized and amazed by it. I said, oh, who is this guy? I want to meet him. She's like, well, no, no, no. It's not going to be a big name movie or anything. You know, forget right. that kind of stuff. And I'm, no, 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 no. I, I really want – she ended up eventually sort of saying, well, she felt that the people that she was working with in films were just be trying to be too cool. She was trying to get out of the movie industry. Right. So she didn't want to kind of, you know – make any additional connections or help anybody meet anybody. But I was like so fascinated with the drawing. I said, I couldn't believe this wonderful box. And of course, later on, when I was going through a movie store, I recognized it. It was Cube. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was just amazing, man. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. And all the technical drawings for that were so advanced compared to what you would expect watching that film. Cause it is really really incredible that they had actually built an entire cube box with components that would move in and move out and of course that became a, a huge canadian film at the time i couldn't believe that anything this like this would have come out of toronto because most of the movies that were coming out of toronto at that time unless it was from david cronenberg or bruce mcdonald unfortunately they just weren't really you know substance weren't stuff that was actually worth watching Right, well, directed by Vincenzo Natale, who continues to make interesting movies like Splice and, and all yeah. sorts of things. I thought Splice was uh, a sadly neglected but really cool uh, science fiction movie about genetics and about, you know, love. They, they create this life uh, which is going to grow and weird things are going to happen to it, and yet... You know, it, 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 it's, people become paternal with it and maternal. And it's, it's, it's a terrific movie. So if you have a chance to see Splice, check it out. Mm -hmm. So uh, continuing on with uh, the Toronto International Film Festival stuff, I um, uh, saw a great many movies <laughs> while I was there. And, um, and it continues. I mean, today, as we sit here recording this, it's Thursday. Uh, I will be doing more uh, tomorrow and then on Saturday as well. Uh, but some of the movies, just sort of quickly to go through, I loved uh, a movie called End of Watch, 
which is okay. a, a cop drama starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena as uh, policemen who have been partners in South Central LA for a very long time. Um, they're almost like brothers. And it is sort of more uh, about the relationship between the two of them rather than uh, the sort of policing that they have to do, though there's a bit of that in there. And I interviewed director David Ayers, who also wrote it. And, you know, he wrote Training Day and SWAT, and he made a movie called Street Kings that he directed. And uh, he said to me, you know, I spend so much time or have spent so much time writing about corrupt cops and bad police that he said, I wanted to do something that's a, a little different. I wanted to write about good cops and, you know, people that put their lives on the line every day. And uh, he's done a really great job here. And uh, so um, uh, this movie, um, End of Watch, comes out soon. So you'll be able to, to check that out. Um, I really liked Looper, which I'm not even going to try and describe the plot to you. <laughs> Uh, it's a time travel uh, drama with uh, Bruce Willis and Joseph Gordon-Levitt playing the same person uh, in 30 years apart uh, who end up on the same linear plane. Uh, so uh, Looper is terrific, directed by Ryan Johnson. Um, really liked uh, Anna Karenina uh, with uh, Kira Knightley, directed by Joe Wright, just because they've taken a story that has been filmed, you know, Leo Toy, Store, Toy Store's uh, uh, um, Anna Karenina has been filmed, I don't know, at least a dozen times, maybe more. And they really bring new life to it, but keep it a period piece. So that's really interesting. And then a documentary called West of Memphis, which I liked quite a bit. Uh, I liked the, com the, the compelling story. It's about the, the West Memphis Three, uh, three young men who 20, almost 20 years ago uh, were sentenced to a murder that they didn't commit a series of murders that they didn't commit, spent 18 years in jail, and then were released. And uh, it's it's interesting now uh, to see uh, the, the how the case was pieced together in documentary form because it really just doesn't seem possible that these guys could have been uh, not only thrown in jail or, but arrested in the first place and then thrown in jail and then left there for 18 years, one of whom, Damien Eccles, was in solitary confinement for 10 years. And he was one of the most kind of fascinating interviews that I did uh, during the film festival um, because uh, he's been out of jail for about a year now. And at the end of the film, we see him uh, come out of jail. And, you know, obviously this is a happy moment. This is how many, 10 years in solitary confinement, 18 years behind bars in total. And we see him shopping and he's with this woman who he married while he was in jail. And they seem to have a terrific relationship. Now I met both of them. They still seem to have a terrific relationship, but I asked him quite pointedly, I said, you know, what happens a year later when you're, when, you know, 18 years of your life had been spent behind bars? And he said, you know, it's been a very difficult transition, much more difficult than the film hinted at, because he said, when you're in jail, you don't make any decisions. Everything is decided for you. What time you eat, what you eat, what time you go to bed, any, all, all the stuff that you and I kind of take for granted uh, is, is, is not available to you. So, you have uh, someone then who was released back into the general population and literally with no, you know, guidance or training or help of any kind. It's just like, you're in jail one day, now you're out. And he said the level of fear and anxiety that he lives with every day, uh, just having spent so much time behind bars and now having to adapt to the, to the uh, regular life was not something that he anticipated. And it's a really fascinating interview. I'm going to post uh, the audio for that interview uh, on the heyallyouzombies.com website because I think it's really worth having a listen to. Cool. Uh, yeah. You know, one of the great things about 
seeing films at the film festival is that no one has seen them before. Uh, and you're not inundated with any kind of it. Well, I don't know if you are uh, from your experience, but you're not really inundated with any kind of advanced information as to right. what the movies are about. Uh, there's no trailers, there's no posters, there's no online gossip. I actually love that as a movie experience. The fact that, you know, every year I'll buy 30 tickets, I'll get that massive, huge program book that has 300 movies you've never heard of before. Uh, and you're trying to explain this to other people who are like, wow, you go to the film festival. So what movies are you seeing? And they're listening as if they're going to recognize the titles that you're rolling off. And you're like, no, 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 no. The best you can do is sort of list some, some, uh, actors, directors, nobody really recognizes that unless they're a film buff but just that experience of going through the book and and you know like a lottery picking something and hoping that it turns out to be what you expect it to be sometimes it's yeah well it's it's a roll of the dice as any film festival is but i really like going into movies cold i like going in not knowing anything um i'm not someone who uh spends a great deal of time watching trailers and trying to figure out how the movie's going to end before i go in I'm there to be told a story. I'm there to be entertained or moved or whatever, you know, the situation may be. I don't, I don't want to know that much. So I'm always more than happy just to go in and sit back and enjoy. And uh, the film festival certainly offers that in spades. I mean, this year um, I walked into movies. Well, I have a, a perfect example of this last year. <coughs> Pardon me. A movie called Pariah was uh, at the schedule at the, the film festival last year. And it was just on my list of movies that I had to see. I cover for a a number of different people. And I was told by one of my my producers, you got to see Pariah. And I was like, whatever. So you look it up on the schedule. And and the schedules that are sent around, there's normally not a synopsis or anything. So I knew I had to see it. I scheduled it in. So I go go see it. And on my way in, it was a Friday afternoon, I remember. And uh, before the festival had started. And I said to someone I was going in with, I'm like, do you know what this is about? And she's like, yeah, it's a zombie movie. I'm like, awesome. I love zombie movies. It's a Friday afternoon. You know, this will be fun. So I sit back and uh, the first scene happens, uh, you know, in a in a bar. And uh, it's it's a bunch of women, you know, sitting around talking. There's loud music. I mean, they're young people. But they're, they're sitting around talking. I'm like, waiting for the zombie apocalypse to happen. Doesn't happen. Turns out there's not a zombie within... 50 miles of this. There's no zombies in this movie whatsoever. It turned out to be a really fascinating story about a young African-American woman who was a lesbian or who is a lesbian trying to come out to her family and the repercussions that that had uh, within her community and family. And uh, But zombie movie, not even close. But that was kind of the beauty of that movie is once I got over the idea that the zombie apocalypse was going to happen any second, I actually sat back and thought, okay, well, this is cool because I knew nothing about this and now I'm being told a story that I might not normally have seen. No, completely. And a lot of the movies that you're going to see um, there – are ones that haven't been censored yet. They're, they're usually the, right. the first director's cuts, a lot yeah. of those films. And it's always interesting that as you go over the course of the 10 days, because they show each movie at least twice, some of them three times, right. there's the opportunity to hear the buzz about one movie. And so you get a movie that you're like, eh, I don't know anything about it. You bought the ticket. Next thing you know, everybody's talking about it. That's the big yeah. ticket to have. That happened with me one year when um, I ended up putting down Boogie Nights, and right. the next thing I know, I'm standing in line, and there's journalists from L.A. going up and down the line offering like $120 for the tickets yeah. because now it's a big, massive story. Right. Because Mark Wahlberg's in there with this appendage, and now yeah. everybody needs to get in and see it, you know? 
Crazy. Yeah, no, I mean, that, there, there's, you know, there's one of those every year. I mean, well, not maybe not every year. This year, and it's not exactly the same thing, but at Midnight Madness, there's a movie called The Bay. And The Bay is like an eco-terror movie. There's something bad is happening in the water in Chesapeake Bay. And, you know, the interesting thing is it was directed by Barry Levinson, who made Diner and Toys and uh, Rain Man. He's never done anything even remotely close to this, not even no. in the same ballpark. And, again, this was just another one on my list. And but I knew it was a horror film, and so I had to look, and I had to look it up to make sure that it was the same Barry Levinson, because I thought there's no way this guy would make this movie. Well, he has, and he's done a great job of it. It's a found footage uh, story, but the thing that makes it so chilling and kind of terrifying is that in a lot of ways it's based in truth, because it's set in Chesapeake Bay, and 40% of Chesapeake Bay is dead. There's no life forms in it anymore, and so he started there. And then pushed the limits of science and, and truth just this much. Like, it's not even that, that far from what could happen. Now, granted, it's unlikely that isopods are going to start eating humans from the inside out and then crawling out of their mouths and going into other humans to eat them, too. But they are eating fish these isopods. So it is potentially possible one day, possibly. I don't know. But it's a, it's a, it's a scary, interesting, uh, cool movie that I would not necessarily have expected. And suddenly, um, you know, a lot of people were trying to get in to see it or? Yeah. Yeah. It was a big hit at Midnight Madness. And now all of a sudden it's one of those ones that everyone in the halls today was like, so have you seen the Bay? <laughs> oh, the Bay is awesome. I knew the Bay was going to be awesome. Uh, you know, so all of a sudden it's one of the movies that everyone's talking about. Um, I interviewed Salman Rushdie. Okay. He is, he is the author of uh, Midnight's Children and uh, directed by Deepa Mehta this year. He wrote the novel when he was 28 years old. He is now in his 60s and, and has adapted it. And it is an epic, long, interesting movie about the history of India. There is telepathy, magic realism, all sorts of things in there. It's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a story. But near the end of the interview, I, I mentioned to him that I follow him on Twitter. Salman Rushdie is on Twitter, and I said, you know, I, 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 you're not someone that I would have thought. <laughs> on Twitter. And, uh, but he uses a lot. He said, you know, I, I love it. Then I tried to trick him in, because he, he said to me, he said, you know, uh, using Twitter has, has, you know, given me uh, an appreciation for words that maybe, you know, and, and, and compressing my thoughts and that kind of stuff. And I said, well, would it be fair to say that the Twitter's made you a better writer? Yeah. And he said, no. <laughs> he disagreed. I was trying to trick Salman Rushdie into saying that Twitter had made him a better writer, and it didn't happen. He saw that coming. He went, no, he no, 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 no. Yeah. I was well, just trying to be a smart ass, and it didn't work. You might have had better success with a different writer, because Salman Rushdie is the kind of man who now has to see everything coming, right? You know, anytime he That's opens right, up yeah. his mouth, yeah. who knows what may happen. Um, right. The other cool thing about going to the film festival is that it's a different experience with the audience than any other kind of, you know, yeah. you can see movies in the cinema any other time of the day, but you're never going to see it quite like you'll see it at the film festival, partly because you have films that are of, of just a wide variety of different themes in nature, but also because of that experience, as we described, people going in not really knowing what they're going to expect. Right. And so you do get walkouts. You do get people who become uh, physical. Uh, one year I went and saw Tim Roth's The War Zone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which has apparently become one of the most infamous screenings out there, and I can understand why. <laughs> it was a very um, brilliant but stark, dark movie that delved into, 
you know, a family that was dealing with inner turmoil. Things go the ugly side of human nature that can happen within a family. Yeah, and a father, like I, I, I saw it. This was like ten years ago, probably. Yeah. Right? And I, I remember the, the father character was really uh, disturbing and violent, and not in a way like a Midnight Madness way. You know, like right. it's. He depicts people who seem to be perfectly normal, but are doing things that are perfectly right. not normal. And right. Tim Roth was had enough foresight that before the theater, uh, the screening, he asked, "Okay, I'm warning you now. Once the screening is over, we're going to be closing the doors. Everyone's staying in their seats. Wow. And I'm going to get wow. up on stage, and we're going to talk about what you just saw. If you were really upset, we're going to let you go, but." No one's going to leave. We were going to, you know, spend the next 20 minutes just talking about it. Any journalists in the room, he says, if you repeat one word of what's being said here, I'm going to hunt you down. So wow. I did not. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Tim wow. was really like, yeah, he just took complete control, ended up talking about all the various things that happened within the film. Uh, and as expected, there were people who were visibly, physically really upset. One yeah. man immediately left, went down the hall, and actually turned, set off the fire alarm because he was that... Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> he was that bothered by what he had just seen. And that's part of the experience of going in and not knowing what it is that you're about to sit down and see. I mean, it's, it's a yeah. brilliant film, but it's not something that you would sit down on a Sunday afternoon just to pass an hour and a half. And just to hang out. Yeah. Wow. And that's a fantastic experience that you would never have had you gone into the video store and said, oh, look, it's Tim Roth from Pulp Fiction. He's made a movie. I'm going to go home and watch this. You know, you would not. Isn't he on that show Lie to Me? I like him on that show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He's funny or whatever. He's cute. I like yeah. him. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I, uh, I interviewed uh, this year. I interviewed uh, Thelma Houston. She has. She sang the disco classic "Don't Leave Me This Way," which is, you know, one of the songs of the disco era. And she's in a movie called uh, "The uh, Secret Disco Revolution." She's a. It's a documentary about uh, disco uh, and and how disco um, wasn't just you know bump and grind music, but you know had more cultural impact than that. And I'm not sure that I buy the, the entire thesis of the movie, but it's a fun movie. And it's cool to see some of the footage. Like, there's footage in this movie of uh, when disco was everywhere, where there's a, there was a period in, like, 1976, 77, 78, where, you know, television shows had disco theme songs. Everything was disco, disco, disco. And there's a, there's a, a clip from a Bob Hope special of Bob Hope singing and dancing with the village people on the board of a of a, like an aircraft carrier, while Henry Kissinger is in the audience clapping along, it's mind blowing, right? Uh, but so I, I talked to her, and I said, you know, the thing that that I think makes "Don't Leave Me This Way" stand out, and some other earlier disco songs, is that when you listen to it, you can tell that it's a real drummer. That it's not programmed. It's, it's like there, you know, there was real musicianship there because later on, uh, you know, they started using um, drum machines and things, and it, and it just didn't have the same organic feel. And she said, "Yeah, later on, uh, they just started singing about whatever. They just it didn't matter what the songs were about. It was just a beat and people. And then she made up a disco song on the spot, singing about the garbage can that she could see from her seat uh, from the uh, from the suite, which I thought was really kind of interesting and fun. And, and she is she has a fantastic voice, and she uh, she made up a little uh, disco song about a garbage can. 
just for me. Oh, <laughs> that's nice. Now, yeah. was this recorded or? Oh, yeah. No, it okay. was recorded. Hell, yeah. Hell, yeah. People will know. <laughs> and uh, I also, I took an element. One of the things that happens uh, at the film festival is that there is usually like a media host hotel where you end up spending most of your time. Mm. You have a, your, your television suite set up in a room there, uh, as I did this year, and you're just doing interview after interview. But you're taking the elevators up and down, and you end up taking the elevators with, with interesting people. So I was in an elevator with Vito Mortensen at one point, uh, lo lots of people. But I took an elevator with Chris Evans, right, Captain America. Right. And so uh, he's here promoting a movie called The Iceman, and he's terrific in this movie. He plays uh, a cold-blooded psychopathic killer, um, but he does so in a really interesting, uh, not expected way. So liked his performance in this a lot. So anyway, we're taking the elevator. There's a few of us on there, but it's like Chris Evans, his publicist, me, and then people that I'll call civilians. It's a big hotel. They're not all there for the film festival, right? So no. um, we go up to the third floor. Chris Evans and his publicist get off. And I'm going up two more floors, and the woman, as soon as the doors closed, went, "Was that Captain America?" <laughs> that was really funny. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. I I thought that maybe she would be disappointed that he didn't have his indestructible shield with him, well, you know? But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I like that. Was that Captain America? Yeah, yes, a lot of people... He's here to save Canada now. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that seems to be the thing. When the festival's on, everybody's asking, like, you know, um, which celebrities have you seen? Anything quite, you know, like that? Anybody that's notable? And it's funny because there's only a handful of people I think are big enough that they're instantly recognizable because right. most of the people who are coming here, you know, I, you know, I'm trying to, you know, respond by saying, well, I saw Jim Jarmusch this morning yeah. at a, you know, that was awesome to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He had a yeah, head no, and he still showed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, like I, I, you know, uh, you know, basically speaking, I, I, I interview everybody, right? I get mm -hmm. to, you know, I, I, I do get to meet them. So, uh, but for me, it's the funny stuff that sticks out. It's Thelma Houston talking about a, singing about a garbage can. It's talking Twitter with Salman Rushdie. It, it's, it's not so much. Uh, you know the interviews. Uh, well, they're posted. They're, they're posted all over the place. You can see them online or on TV and stuff. Those interviews speak for themselves. The memories that I take away are the kind of unusual, funny things that happen. The spontaneous in America. Yeah, there's a spontaneous stuff that seems like just a little bit outside the film festival, and that's the stuff that I like. Right, very cool. Um, okay, well, um, we're not really doing a proper movie pistols at dawn. There's no, no competition really to speak of. But we're going to let you vote anyway. Um, I was thinking that you and I could uh, each talk about, I guess, the biggest discovery. There are lots of movies right. that you often find at the film festival. Some of them you never see again. There's a documentary called Pin Gods that was done many years ago right. about bowling. It was awesome. Never has been released. And I, right. I, it's sad that no one has ever been able to see it but me and about 40 other people. But, wow. uh, wow. yeah, I wanted to talk about sort of movies that we have seen that were considered gems, big discoveries. Now you would brag about having discovered it at the film right. festival. Well, it, it's it's interesting, you know. Uh, uh, I often think about people talking about, oh yeah, I was at that screening or I was at that concert. But there's a famous story about the police playing in Toronto 
um, at the Horseshoe Tavern. And uh, I think it was at the Horseshoe, either that or a place called Edgerton. It's called The Edge. But uh, like only three or four people showed up the first time that they came through, right? And now, though, I've lived in Toronto for 30 years. This happened like 35 years ago. Uh, the amount, it's the amount of people that I've spoken to over the years who actually were at that concert, <laughs> who claimed to have been at that concert, they would have had to have it at Madison Square Garden. Because, like, I met, I would guarantee you, like, at least 30,000 people have said to me over the last 30 years, oh, yeah, I was one of them. There were only five of us there. It was crazy. Uh, so in terms of, of uh, TIFF movies that, that – uh, you know, we're, we're kind of special. Um, for me, I'm going to pick one from this year. Uh, and it, it's one that, that I had high hopes for going in. Uh, it played at the Cannes Film Festival and got kicked around a little bit. And then it's one of those really interesting uh, examples of a movie that was uh, taken uh, back to the editing room, changed, although uh, I'm not sure how much it was changed. I never saw the original cut of it. But I, I think about 10 minutes was cut out. It was shown in Toronto, and uh, I just found it gorgeous and really one of the highlights of my film going uh, thing. I loved the book On the Road by Jack Kerouac. That book really kind of changed things for me a little bit when I was a kid. And for years, this book has been thought to be non-filmable mm -hmm. because nothing really happens. They, Dean Moriarty and Sal Paradise and their pals, Mary Lou and, and Camille, they drive around, they drink, they screw, they don't really do anything. There's no traditional line, uh, plot line through it. They visit people. It is a real experience, though, and, it, and, and it's freeing, and the prose is beautiful, and it's just it's, it's a fantastic book. But it's long been considered unfilmable. So Walter Salas, uh, the uh, filmmaker, uh, found a way, and uh, he, at Cannes, the movie apparently was thought to be meandering and pointless, now, I'll tell you, taking 10 minutes out of it, if that's what he's done, as I said, I didn't see the original cut, uh, changes things. This movie is beautiful. It is uh, still a little bit aimless, but that's kind of within the spirit of the storytelling. It's supposed to be aimless. And and the the acting is so good. Garrett Hegland plays uh, Dean Moriarty, who is one of the towering figures of American literature, uh, a guy, an English actor named Sam Riley. And I would have thought that it might be sacrilege to cast uh, someone who is not American as uh, Sal uh, Paradise. Sal Paradise is the name in the book, uh, right. Jack Case, the Jack Kerouac character in the book. Uh, but this guy uh, is unbelievable. He's so good in this. It is just it's a really interesting case study of characters and people sort of searching for the joy in life and not really finding it. And Kristen Stewart is in it. And I know that she's the one that gets all the attention, but she's very good in it. And it's, it's just simply put a really hypnotizing, interesting movie. And after can, I had a bad feeling in the pit of my stomach about this. And then I saw it a couple of weeks ago and it's, it's terrific. Oh, that's interesting. So that is that, that is my that's my story of a movie that I wasn't really sure because the book means so much to me that I wasn't really sure what was going to happen and I would be I would not have been happy if it wasn't good and I'll tell you it's good. Well, and that's that's funny. It's like weird because at you know Khan is the one place in which having something that's kind of meandering and aimless and yeah. sort of you know philosophical usually does well. It's different from going to say an American uh, film festival. Right. 
But you know, part of it may just be the context of what was the last movie that you just saw, because right. that's also a part of the film festivals. You're seeing four or five movies in a day. Yeah, and it can be rough. You don't want to review yeah. the third or fourth movie that you've seen that day. Yeah. No, because it's you know, I mean, they, they say seeing movies can be like a almost like taking drugs, and one kind of compounds the other. The the worst right. combination I ever saw was that I saw Tom Twicker's Heaven, which right. Is very slow movie, you know, his adaptation of a, a Christoph Kislowski film, which is very slow, European, ooh, takes yeah. a long time to get anywhere. Then out of leaving that, running across the street and going into Gus Van Sant's Jerry, which oh, is, wow. you know, that real time long epic of just two guys wandering through the desert. And yeah. that, I mean, where there are like 20 minutes and nothing happened, just the, the camera following the desert along. So a slower movie it suddenly seemed a lot slower to me. And then the third one I saw after that was Spun. Which was a bunch of methamphetamine. Which is the complete yeah, opposite. Of that, yeah. yeah, and I can't imagine that I've I've seen any of those films properly because you know my my sense of time was thrown off by all the others. Yeah. Um, the big movie that was a, a, a discovery for me came about just by the way that the film festival works. If you're attending the film festival, it is a complicated set of hoops that you have to jump through just to see the movies that you want right. to see. Right. You start off first by making a commitment. Well advanced. Before you even know what movies are there, you have to say how many tickets that you're going to buy, and they just send you a bunch of blank tickets. Right. Then when they finally release the book, you go through the book, and you say, okay, well, I got 20 tickets. These are the 20 films I'd like to see. You're not necessarily going to get them. You submit them. Then they actually run a, a lottery system where you get a number. I'm number 56. Well, you know, it's box number 53 that started, and maybe you'll get your right. selection. Maybe you don't. So eventually they kick them back. And every year, this is the process that I have to go through where you're hoping and you get your, your selections back. Maybe half the movies that you wanted, you got. The other half, you didn't get. Right. Uh, so there was one year in which I really got screwed. I <laughs> 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 had sent in, you know, 30 tickets, and I think I got 12 back. There were actually movies that I wanted. And right. this is really rough. Even though there's 300 films, chances are most of them are not necessarily your taste. You don't really want to. You never know, yeah. You know, a Hungarian film about two gay men going across Europe may not be your thing. So you're going through the book, and I'm trying to find something to fill the rest of the tickets. And because you're on the clock at that point, because everybody's trading in their tickets. Right. So you're rapidly, your selection is dwindling by the hour. Right. So I'm going through the book trying to find something to fill up those tickets. Uh, yes, this this was my second choice. That was my third choice. And I got down to like a couple of tickets. And, and at that point, you're almost blindfolded. Just, eh, I'll go for that. And there was one movie in the book that I kept ignoring and avoiding like the plague. Uh, Pulp Fiction had just come out. And right. so there was a rash of, of these movies that came out about, you know, six guys trying to do a crime and it goes right. all wrong. And, and non-linear kind of time frames. And yeah, all that stuff. It, yeah. I mean, you know, think of the ones that came out that actually made it to the theaters, that made it to right. the movie stores, and then understand that there was about 20 others that actually went to film festivals and such like that. And I was, you know, and it was one of those. And I'm not, oh, I do not want to see this. I'm looking at the cast. Most of them I don't recognize. There's this... Baldwin brother, and it's not Alec Baldwin that's in the movie, so I thought, oh, horrible. But I just ran out, so oh, I thought, I know oh, where you're going with yeah. this, yeah. <laughs> so I went and I selected the damn thing, and then forgot about it, because the film festival right. goes on for 10 days, and so I saw yeah. all my films, and they were great, and then it came to this one damn movie, and I, you know, was thinking of whether I should skip it, because there are times in which I've done that in the past. I thought, you know, this wasn't a movie I wanted anyways. Right. I just sort of got stuck with it because of the lottery system. I showed up to the movie theater, 
It was empty. I poked my head in through the door. There were only six people in the theater. <laughs> this was like the first screening. I thought, this is really bad. Everything about this is just horrible. And I sit down, and it starts up. And uh, it turns out it was the usual suspects. Yeah, Kaiser Zose. Yeah. Yeah, which is if I was voted to be a movie god and I had like omnipotent power, <laughs> that's how I would want everybody to see that movie. Yeah. Yeah. If there's ever a movie that you want to walk in, not only knowing nothing about it, but having just, I mean, people, you know, it's, it's now considered a huge, massive cult classic, but people have no idea that there's, <laughs> nobody knew who Benicio Toro was at the time. Yeah, Gabriel yeah. Byrne, you, I kind of knew from the festival circuit, he was in a couple of films, but not really, you know, unless you had seen Miller's Crossing, he wasn't really that's right. yeah, a, yeah, yeah, a reason yeah. to trust the film. And then, you know, everybody else that's in that movie, it's just like, hmm, who knows, right? Yeah. Uh, and what a strange film. At first, I wasn't sure what to make of it, especially when Benicio Del Toro appears on the screen. He starts talking like this. Yeah. <laughs> His eyebrows all shaved off. You know, oh, uh. my gosh. But fantastic. Walked out completely mind-blown and, of course, trying to tell everybody I could see, you got to see this movie. And right. not sure that anyone was going to believe it because there was nobody in the theater. I walked in. It was right. just me and six other people watching. I don't know how that happened, but that, for me, was my biggest discovery at TIFF. Well, that, well, that's a good one. That is a good one. <laughs> As things go, man. Wow. And I, I love those. I, yeah, and I, I love those moments when you just come up with something that, that is really interesting and turns out to be mind-blowing. And you're like, I don't care if anyone else on the planet ever sees this movie. I got to see it here. It's cool. Well, and that's it. You have that experience with a lot of films. I, I mean, I'm choosing Usual Suspects because I know everyone will recognize it and go say, hey, it's yeah. fantastic. But there are times in which at the film festival, you will leave and go, that was the greatest movie. And then nobody yeah. will talk about it for the next yeah. three weeks. It's, it's your yeah. own personal private gem your own discovery and and hopefully you have the strength enough to go i don't care i enjoyed it that was fantastic <laughs> i thought it was great damn it <laughs> well and i thought um, it was going to be one of those films because there was nobody in yeah. the theater and i'm walking yeah. around and nobody you know heard it you're standing in line for the next three four days and everybody's asking what's a good movie you saw oh i saw this movie called the usual suspects really who's in it gabriel byrne Mm, I don't know about, you know, it's about yeah. a bunch of guys and they commit a crime and it goes wrong. Oh, yeah. And so it was amazing when it finally did hit theaters and it became the big movie that it is. Yeah, yeah. And then everyone on the planet was like, I was one of the six people at that screening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I always use that as an example of, you know, don't be, uh, if you are, if you do go to the film festival, don't get suckered into listening to what the crowd is talking about to, right. to trying to go off of what gossip or hype is recommending. The true Toronto International Film Festival experience is personal self-discovery. It's yeah. blindly going into a bunch of films and being wonderfully surprised just like that. Right. Well, that is a perfect way to wrap this up. Our, our TIFF edition. 2012. And <laughs> All right. So I gotta get gonna, back to it. So what I'm gonna do is, uh, as promised, I'm gonna play the full version of Johnny O and the Jerks with Here we Zombie go. Love Affair. Let me pull up the, and uh, that'll be our our way out. So we'll see all you right. all next week. Make sure to go to HeyAllYouZombies.com. Give us any feedback, comments. If you're going to the Toronto International Film Festival, let us know what movies you've discovered. 